Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. Today's book is Planning Singapore, the Experimental City by Stephen Hammett and Belinda Ewing, published by Routledge in 2019. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the show. Hi, Trisha. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, can let's start with? Uh, can you tell the audience about yourself and your educational background? Okay, I took my first degree in geography at the University of Oxford in England, and then a postgraduate town planning degree at the Oxford Polytechnic. A few years later, I studied for a PhD at the University of Reading, where I had the very good fortune to have Professor Peter Hall as my supervisor. And Peter remained a mentor for much of my career, as he did for many people. And he was instrumental in fostering my interest in the comparative study of planning systems and of world cities. I held teaching and research positions at the University of Delft in the Netherlands and at the University of Aston in the UK, and briefly at the University of Akron in Ohio, before moving to Australia in the early 1980s. I arrived in Adelaide in South Australia in about 1984, and much of my work since then has focused on Australian and Asian cities and their planning. Moving to Australia when I did, I provided me with a, a lot of really good opportunities to work and travel extensively in Asia over the years that followed. So I spent periods in particular at universities in Malaysia, Hong Kong, Indonesia and the Philippines. And I also worked on a number of projects for AusAid, Australia's international aid agency. Um, my my co-editor and co-author, Belinda Yuen, is a leading Singaporean planning academic who's had a distinguished career at the National University of Singapore and more recently at the Singapore University of Technology and Design, where she's a professorial fellow and leads research programs in the the Lee Kuan Yew Center for Innovative Cities. Belinda has been a keen observer of and participant in Singapore's planning for many years. And she's also worked extensively outside Singapore, including a period with the World Bank and also stints with the Asian Development Bank. I came to know Belinda well about 10 years ago when she contributed the Singapore chapter to a book which I edited with Dean Forbes uh, on Asian cities. And it was this collaboration which led eventually to the idea of the present book. Uh, So let's start with what was your motivation for writing this book? Well, we wanted to, to write, we wanted to put together a collection of essays focused on the future of planning for Singapore. And the context was that the book is being published some 200 years after Sir Stamford Raffles, the British colonial statesman, first envisaged the development of Singapore as a great commercial emporium and fulcrum, as he called it, and negotiated its cession from the Malaysian Sultanate of Johor on behalf of the British in 1819. Now, Singapore's history didn't begin with Raffles, but the population at the time of his landing was only about a thousand people. Uh, So the arrival of the British gave Singapore a very significant impetus for growth. And clearly the 200th anniversary of the arrival of Raffles, ushering in as it did a long and eventual period of colonial rule, has been a momentous event and is the focus of many bicentennial commemorations this year. But these are probably not of the scale of the celebrations which accompanied another recent historical milestone, historical milestone, and that was the 50th anniversary in 2015 
of the establishment in 1965 of an independent Singapore. In the years before independence, conditions in Singapore were dismal. There weren't enough jobs for a rapidly expanding population. Living conditions were deplorable. Overcrowding was severe. And there was a real abiding air of instability and uncertainty. And yet a little over a half a century later, Singapore is a city which has been remarkably and dramatically transformed from those desperate conditions of the, the mid-20th century. For several years now, it's been ranked as the most livable city in Asia. Lee Kuan Yew, the first post-independence prime minister, described Singapore as having made the transformation from third world to first in half a century. And Peter Hall, in his 1998 book, Cities and Civilization, described this transformation as perhaps the most extraordinary case of economic development in the history of the world. So we wanted to bring this story um, to a wider audience. Um, there's been a great deal of reflection, in fact, on Singapore's history to mark these important recent anniversaries. But we also wanted in this book, while paying due acknowledgement to history, to look forward and to ask in particular whether the planning and government approaches which have proved so successful to date can meet the challenges of the future. So the book was written for that purpose and it contains a series of essays on aspects of Singapore's current planning aspirations and challenges. Some of the authors are based in Singapore, while others look at Singapore from the outside. And the essays, while differing in style, are united by their focus on what might come next in, in this remarkable unfolding narrative of Singapore's planned development? Uh, well, for our audience and for me, I've uh, reading your book, I've learned a lot about Singapore. Um, can you give me a, a little bit more history on Singapore? I mean, how was the city founded? Um, who, who, what is the demographics there? And um, why is the city in Asia important? Well, it, um, it's a small island state. It has um, five million people um, and um, its historical growth, well, well, it goes back to the 14th century or thereabouts as a, as a trading post. Um, as, as I indicated, it became significant around the time of, uh, uh, its it, significant growth began once the British arrived in the uh, early 19th century. Um, the, um, the remarkable thing about the city um, is how much has been accomplished in the past 50 years. I mean, that, that's the, the essence of uh, um, the, the Singaporean experiment and the Singaporean model. Um, it's a city which is very orderly, um, we mention in the book that there's there's really no better place for the visitor to observe the accomplishments of Singapore over the past 50 or so years than from the the rooftop deck of one of its uh, taller buildings. And there, there are quite a few of uh, buildings these days of uh, 40 or 50 stories in the in the downtown. Um, and looking out from there, you can see a cluster of tall commercial and institutional buildings occupied by the, the giants of global capital, interspersed with hotels from the world's major hotel chains, indicative of how important Singapore is as a major Asian tourist destination and as a hub for international finance and trade. International celebrity architects are, are well represented in Singapore, I.M. Pei, Moshe Safdi, who was responsible for the stunning Marina Bay Sands development, Zaha Hadid, Ken Yang, Foster and Partners, and the rest. To the south of the, uh, the CBD is the massive 80-hectare site of the Tanjong Pagar container port, which was South Southeast Asia's first such container port in the 1970s. Um, but it's now being prepared for redevelopment with its activities relocated to a newer terminal, 
uh, and ultimately to a, a mega port at the western end of the island. And also you can view to the west the chimneys of huge petrochemical complexes, which together with the container port serve the ever-present queues of ships and tankers offshore, which bear witness to the continuation of Singapore's historic importance as a major trading port. And then out to the north in a broad arc are the tall apartment blocks of Singapore's 23 new towns and housing estates, uh, often called the heartland where most Singaporeans live, linked to the downtown by an extensive and constantly expanding network of mass rapid transit rail lines. And then away to the east is the Changi International Airport, one of the most important aviation hubs in Asia, and voted the world's best airport for the sixth year in a row in 2018. And all of this is set against a backdrop of an incredibly green island. You would think with a small area and a high density that uh, Singapore would be totally built up. But in fact, it isn't. It, uh, it's um, got a huge central catchment area, which is very green, and it has... Um, uh, an enormous amount of planting, much of it uh, only 50 or so years old or less, um, which sets the, uh, the, the urban development against a, a surprisingly green backcloth. Back On your cover, and you have the famous picture of these trees or these metal trees. Can you talk more about that? What is it and why is that important? And how did that come about uh, in the urban planning? Well, picking up on the, the, the theme of greenery, the, um, the concrete trees on the cover, the, the, uh, the so-called super trees at Gardens by the Bay, uh, have been somewhat controversial in recent years. But if I just, just perhaps step back a bit, I mean, any, any visitor to Singapore, especially from a, a more temperate latitude, is going to be overwhelmed when they arrive by the tropical fecundity of the place. Um, and, but the explanation for the lush vegetation which you see in Singapore is a somewhat complex one. Um, one of the essays by Lena Chan on nature in Singapore describes how when Raffles arrived in 1819, most of the island was indeed densely covered by tropical rainforest. But by the middle of the, the 19th century, much of this had been cleared and replaced by spice plantations with remnants of the earlier forests surviving only on a few steep slopes and hilltops. These 19th century spice estates were replaced in the early 20th century by rubber plantations, and these came to dominate the, the non-urban landscape until the mid 20th century. Well, soon after independence in 1965, alongside its pressing economic, social and, and uh, economic challenges, the, the, the government of Lee Kuan Yew embarked upon an ambitious and transformational program intended to promote Singapore as a clean and green garden city. And Lina Chan traces the early achievements in beautifying the city and the developments subsequently of a greater emphasis on the recreational significance of parks from the 1980s as Singaporeans became more affluent and quality of life issues assumed more importance. In those early years after independence, exotic tree species were chosen because of their ability to grow fast, first to provide shade and later colour. But Chan describes how from the 1990s, a greater emphasis was placed on the importance of preserving and restoring Singapore's native vegetation and enhancing its biodiversity. And more recently, efforts to incorporate planting at the upper levels of tall buildings also gathered momentum. So-called vertical greenery or skyline greenery. And as uh, Belinda Yuen, my um, co-author, has pointed out, with 90% or so of Singaporeans occupying apartments, greenery in high-rise is not an ornamental option or an aesthetic uh, option, but a necessary functional component of high-rise living. Now, Lena demonstrates the results of recent efforts to enhance Singapore's biodiversity, uh, and they've been very impressive. 
Species that were thought to be extinct have reappeared. Species not previously found in Singapore have been observed. And the island now has a rich diversity of flora and fauna across a broad range of ecosystems. The number of species is quite remarkable, given Singapore's small size and also its history of clearance. But as with most aspects of Singapore's development, there are some obvious challenges ahead. And the most significant of these is the continuing pressure of urban growth on the carrying capacity of the island's very finite amount of land. There's also a paradoxical threat these days inherent in the, the greater engagement with nature by Singaporeans as they come to identify with, own and uh, increasingly overuse local nature reserves and resources. The, the official um, description of the island these days, the official slogan is and has been for about 10 years is of Singapore as a city in a garden. And there are some wonderful gardens. Uh, the, um, the long established and traditional Singapore Botanic Gardens, recognised as a, a World Heritage Site by UNESCO a few years ago. Um, there's a, a new garden under development at Jurong in the West. But to come back to the, the, the question about the super trees, um, these are in the complex known as Gardens by the Bay, where the emphasis is primarily on spectacle uh, and technology. And in addition to the, the concrete trees, uh, which have vertical displays of epiphytes and ferns growing up them, there are some vast climate-controlled conservatories displaying plants from around the world. They're very popular. They, they attract large numbers of locals and tourists. But they've also been the focus for critics of Singapore's approach to nature. And Timothy Barnard of the University of Singapore in particular has described Gardens by the Bay as part of a growing technocratic approach to the environment and as representing a continuation of the artificiality of much of the greening process over the past 50 or so years. Now, given the history, um, it's inevitable that nature in Singapore is essentially a human construct. Um, as I said, everything was largely cleared in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And there are some proponents of the notion of the, the biophilic city, the notion that, that humans need connectedness to nature at multiple scales for a variety of experiences. Um, especially Timothy Beatley of the University of Virginia, who suggests that Singapore is a very good example of 21st century urban nature, a blended form of nature in which remnant natural species and habitats will increasingly mix with more human design forms of nature, such as living walls, green rooftops, sky parks. And the suggestion is that urban nature in the future is likely to entail the creative blending of real and artificial natural systems, requiring us to expand and grow beyond our conventional ideas of nature. Oh, so it sounds like um, this is a, I didn't realize Singapore, well, like many parts of the world is, um, it's a second or third force. It's been cleared a couple times now and reestablished. It was almost, it, it's, it's 700 or so square kilometers. It's a fairly small area and it was um, pretty seriously cleared uh, in the 19th century and then uh, continues to be cleared, the forest that remains and the secondary forest for urban development, which progresses at a pace. The, the, the population's five million now, it's predicted to grow to some six and a half million uh, in the next decade or so. So there is remorseless wow. pressure for development. Uh, and that seems to mean that um, Singapore's future biodiversity will inevitably rely on what Beatley and his uh, colleagues have referred to as artificial natural systems. So there, there are great debates about what nature actually means in Singapore, and these will no doubt continue. But a positive view would be that Singapore's acknowledgement of 
the importance of novel ecosystems contributing to, to future biodiversity is, is a pragmatic response to the challenge which it faces. Um, it's also a potential model for the other high-density cities with limited biodiversity, which will house the greater part of the world's population in this increasingly urban century. Um, but nature is certainly a, uh, a contested area of discussion in Singapore. That's interesting. Yeah, I was reading here you had the, the Nature Conservation Master Plan. And um, so when they started doing the new urban planning about, you said about 50 years ago, um, who who initiated that and how, it sounds like that they've been very successful at doing um, urban planning uh, throughout Singapore and that species have come back. How did they do it? Well, the the success of Singapore's planning, which extends to, as the book shows, it extends across the, the restoration of biodiversity, the planning of the commercial centres, um, the remarkable achievements in, in housing. Um, Singapore, from being a poorly housed society uh, 50 years ago, now has accomplished something which um, very few other societies in the world um, have accomplished, and that is housing all of its population uh, in, in safe, secure, and, and well-designed housing. Um, the transport system, likewise, has been um, remarkably uh, effectively introduced over that period. The, um, the network of fast rail that links the, the 23 new towns um, to the to the CBD and to each other, and shortly across the straits to neighbouring Malaysia. Um, all of that's been accomplished through a very integrated, top-down, centralised administrative system um, under the People's Action Party, the, the party that came to power um, around the time of independence, and has effectively been a single um, party government ever since. And it operates through um, some very powerful central agencies, in particular the, the Housing and Development Board, which is responsible for, for housing in Singapore, the Urban Redevelopment Authority, which is effectively the planning authority, and the Economic Development Board, which as the name suggests is responsible for the overall economic planning of Singapore. Um, so Singapore's success undoubtedly relates to um, the stability provided by an unchanging regime over this period um, and, and a situation in which government exercises very strong control over land, uh, the acquisition of land and then the use of land to implement um, long-term plan. Singapore has two principal planning instruments, the broad strategic concept plan and the more detailed master plan, which guides and regulates the, the detailed development of land. Um, the second chapter in the book um, by Shin Bin Tan and Donald Lowe explores the nature of this planning system in some detail. And they describe Singapore's style of planning as modernist, top-down, rational, technocratic, and overwhelmingly the responsibility of experts. And, and they suggest that community participation, while increasingly undertaken, still seems to be regarded as useful by government only to the extent that it informs and supports expert decision-making. So some critics have suggested that Singapore still experiences a sort of democratic deficit, um, but there are there are various views on that. So how did they, in your research, did you, how they did all this, but how did they fund it? I mean, cause that's a question, you know, um, in the U S is, you know, how do you get funding to do, um, all this infrastructure? That's interesting that they, so they really, I guess their homeless rate is very low. Um, or doesn't happen. Well, they, 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 they funded it, um, 
to a considerable extent through public land acquisition and the development of land and the um, the use then of the proceeds from land development for for infrastructure, housing, and all of the other things which the um, Singapore state is responsible for. We, we spend quite a bit of time, uh, Belinda and I, in the, the opening chapter explaining how Singapore's governance arrangements work because really these are, are quite fundamental to all that's happened there since independence. Um, I, I might just, if, if I may say a little about, about these. Um, Sing Singapore's, yeah. Singapore academics tend to discuss politics and governance around a couple of themes, uh, vulnerability and exceptionalism. And perhaps I can just explain what these terms mean. I, I guess it has to be acknowledged up front that Singapore's transformation in the second half of the 20th century, which has led to enormous economic and social improvements, was paid for in the early years especially with a significant amount of social, cultural and political repression. Um, Singapore is a very authoritarian state, or it certainly was in its early years after independence. In that regard, it wasn't unlike other developmental states in Asia, where there was a sort of implicit social contract between government and citizens. Um, there was the promise of economic growth and material benefit in exchange for some curtailment of democratic rights. And this authoritarianism in Singapore was justified by its rulers on the basis of the island state's extreme vulnerability, a small nation with no natural resources, heavily, heavily reliant on imports and trade, and a small island with a, a fairly small population and much larger Muslim-majority neighbours next door in Indonesia and Malaysia. So these concerns about vulnerability were, were probably understandable. And they led to this second notion of exceptionalism, uh, the argument essentially that because Singapore is so uniquely vulnerable, it requires a degree of political consensus and social stability that ordinary democratic arrangements can't produce. Um, but hence the, the persistence of single party government uh, since independence. Now, now Singapore is a much less repressive place now than it was in the 1960s or 70s. And many aspects of social and cultural life have been progressively liberalised. But political liberalism and pluralism and community involvement in politics remain underdeveloped. And there are strong voices in Singapore who believe that the country still needs to become more open, more liberal and democratic in part on the argument that a single-party government is at odds with Singapore's global status these days as an international trading nation, and also on the grounds that this sort of top-down governance risks stifling innovation and creativity. And several of the chapters in economics, on water, on waste, and, and, and others uh, discuss in some detail this idea of a conflict between top-down, efficient government and the stifling of innovation and creativity, which are going to be necessary in the, the years ahead. The population of Singapore is also rather different now from the 1960s. The majority of Singaporeans are prosperous, well-educated, digitally literate, middle-class homeowners, much less inhibited than previous generations in challenging the PAP government. Unlike governments around the world, the Singaporean government now finds it much more difficult to control the expressions of citizens' views in this age of social media. So diverse voices are increasingly heard. But I should say that the view that Singapore, with its educated, affluent and increasingly globally connected middle class, will inevitably follow a path towards becoming a multi-party liberal democracy on Western lines, is by no means universally accepted. And there remain articulate proponents in Singapore of the merits of collectivism over liberalism and individualism. 
Since their earliest days, um, PAP governments have maintained support for a collective view of society, drawing at various times on Confucianism and uh, appeals to supposedly shared Asian values. Lee Kuan Yew in particular uh, was fond of arguing that Asians prefer a communitarian society where collective interests take precedence to a more individualistic society like the United States. And this collectivist nature of Singapore has underpinned some of the most effective and important public institutions since the early post-independence days. Um, and the Housing and Development Board, which I mentioned earlier, is a prime example. It was established in 1960 with wide powers over land acquisition and all aspects of the planning, design and management of housing. And it was responsible for the fact that by the late 1990s, more than 80% of the population was well housed in public housing. So collectivism is, also, is inherent in the, the model of state capitalism also that Singapore pursues and, and in the very high level of public land ownership. For the last 40 years or so, most Western democracies have been dominated by the free market ideology of neoliberalism. But Singapore has largely rejected this, riding roughshod over private property rights in pursuit of public housing and other planned developments in the national interest. But simultaneously, it's built a number of wealthy state-owned enterprises, which have become hugely successful players on the global stage. So Singapore is now a, a very rich country with um, huge capital reserves. So overall, Singapore, since independence, has had a model of government underpinned by the rejection of liberalism, the national public housing program, state capitalism and land ownership. And these together have allowed Singapore to demonstrate um, a model of a non-liberal society, but with a very successful capitalist economy. Uh, I might just make another comment. As, as we were putting the finishing touches to the book, many government departments in the United States were experiencing a lengthy shutdown as a result of conflict between Congress and President Trump. At the same time, the UK, the other traditional bastion of Western democratic values, appeared to be deeply divided and in a complete hole over its Brexit strategy from which it's yet to emerge. So it's not completely surprising, I think, that in the early 21st century, there are those in Singapore who suggest that Western democracy may be losing its luster and that there are viable alternatives to liberalism based on the principles of society above the individual. So that's, that's the background against which the essays in the book taken together were written and explore the, the overarching question of whether this planning and governance approach which has served Singapore so very well to this point, will be adequate to shape its next 50 years. Pressures for democratic reform were, were strong around the time of the 2011 election, but they seem to have died down somewhat since then. And the main focus of Singaporeans and their government at present appears to be to maintain the security, material prosperity and quality of life that have been hard won since independence. This might not be easy, though, at a time of disruptions to the global trade on which Singapore is so dependent. Evidence of growing social inequality within Singapore, tensions over immigration, the continuing pressure of a finite amount of land, and also some unprecedented environmental challenges as climate change becomes an existential threat to Singapore as elsewhere. Oh, well, that kind of made me think of two questions. Um, uh, what is the role of, or what is the relig dominant religion um, in Singapore, and how does that play in their community planning and government? And uh, what about their poverty rate? Uh, is it, it seems to be pretty low. Um, and yet, I think it's true, I, or if I understand right, and I have traveled a little bit in Asia, is that uh, it, it is more focused on community versus um, the individual. Can you comment on that? 
Yes, well, uh, take the last point first. I mean, I, I, I really just um, did comment on, on the, the, the importance that is still placed by many people and certainly by the government on the notion of society above individual. Um, the um, housing is um, it, it's a very interesting model. Um, people um, are obliged to pay. Everybody who works is obliged to pay a proportion of their uh, monthly income into what's called the Central Provident Fund. And this is also contributed to by employers. And those funds are essentially savings that um, uh, originally were, were primarily savings for retirement. But they're also funds that people are allowed to draw on to um, purchase housing. Initially, housing was provided for rental, but increasingly, um, most people purchase their house using money they draw from their central provident fund savings. Um, and that's been a, um, a successful model, very successful, um, given that most Singaporeans are, are well housed. But um, it engages the government in a, a constant balancing act because they want to see some appreciation in the value of property so that when people do reach retirement age, they can um, sell their HDB apartment and use the proceeds to move perhaps to a, a smaller apartment or to live with other family members and to um, fund their retirement from the proceeds. So, um, but at the same time, the, the government needs to keep housing um, affordable so that new entrants to the system can afford to, to uh, enter the housing market. Um, now, um, what has happened in recent years is that there's become um, a sort of stretching out of the Singapore housing market. There are, uh, as Singapore has become a more successful global city, it's become subject to the pressures for housing in the private sector to become more and more expensive. And, and that's had its influence on, on uh, housing prices within the, the public housing sector. Um, also at the bottom end of the housing market, there is increasing evidence of more people um, experiencing poverty and, and difficulty as a consequence of um, the changing nature of the, the labour force. It, essentially, in Singapore, there isn't much of a welfare state. Housing is certainly uh, a major contribution to public welfare. But for the rest, the, all the benefits you get from government depend very much on you being in work. And if you drop out of the employment system, then it becomes more difficult. So there, there is um, increasing evidence of people doing it tough at the bottom end of the housing and employment market. And part of that is to do with the changing nature of the employment market. Um, Singapore is, uh, is, is experiencing, like other developed countries, um, the rise of the, the so-called gig economy. And there's a shift from manufacturing to, to services, which has occurred over recent decades. Um, and so people who are at the bottom of the, uh, the employment market um, struggling to, to operate in these new economic circumstances are also finding it harder to gain access to um, the benefits that are available in Singapore, principally through the, the public housing system. Now, that may, I, I may have missed one of your questions in there, so please remind me if I did. Uh, that's okay. Uh, well, so, so, what is something that um, or we can learn over here from Singapore that we can apply to urban planning and housing, like let's say, I mean, I'm in Key Largo in Miami, and um, clearly Miami has a traffic problem. It's pretty universally known. Um, what uh, can we learn from the urban planning um, in Singapore that we can apply to the United States from your book? Well, some of the things um, that Singapore has achieved are difficult to translate to other contexts um, because. They, they, they rest on certain 
political and economic principles, which um, would not find a great deal of support, I suspect, in the United States or indeed Australia at the moment. The, the, the notion of strong, top-down, central planning, government ownership of land, um, and so on. The, the Lee Kuan Yew, the first prime minister, and um, some of his colleagues were actually educated in the UK in the, the 1940s. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew went to Fitzwilliam College, Cambridge. So he was there at a time when Britain was experimenting with its post-war planning system, uh, nationalisation of land, um, new towns, public housing, and so on. And some argue that those ideas were, were very influential. Um, but um, in other ways, Singapore uh, is a sort of planner's heaven because um, it takes ideas that have been um, accepted in the um, certainly in the Western world for for the last few decades, planned decentralisation, transit-oriented development, um, investment in rail systems to uh, with with stations in the middle of new towns, surrounded by community facilities, high-density housing. Um, and easy access to employment. Uh, more recently, it's moved. It, it already has relatively low rates of car ownership, um, and it's moving to reduce the um, size of the car fleet significantly, and it can do that because of the power that the government has, um, and to encourage what it calls car light settlements, where people are increasingly um, being taught to think that life without a car is perfectly feasible and uh, indeed um, may even be of a higher quality. Uh, there's a lot of experiment going on in um, active transport, in cycling and in new forms of uh, new and disruptive ways of getting around, uh, e-scooters, um, dockless bikes and, uh, and so on. Um, but at the heart of all this, Singapore... Um, it has a concept plan, the sort of plan that most metropolitan areas in the world have with visions, aspirations, goals, plans for new, new, new settlements, new transport systems and so on. The distinct thing about Singapore is they actually implement these plans. The plans are not just visions, they, they, they get put into effect. Um, but they're, they're, they're put into effect by means of... Um, uh, a very well-integrated, um, highly centralised, well-funded system um, that enables the uh, the plans to be translated from paper into reality. It sounds like it's a very um, well. If nothing else, you're right. It's an island, so you know you, you kind of have to be functional, and um, you kind of have to be really organised to make it work. That's right. I mean, when when, when uh, I mean every every square meter of land on the island pretty well is planned, um, zoned, and allocated to a particular use, and uh, um, the the highest and best use of that land. Um, because of the the pressure on space, the challenge ahead is where to find more land. Um, that the book explains in the final chapter that that can be. Outward, I mean, there is some discussion of Singapore expanding across its border to to Malaysia, which is just across the the, the Straits of uh, Johor, um, and indeed um, some fifty thousand people commute into Singapore every day from Malaysia across the international border. Um, the um, Singapore is is looking very seriously at expanding downwards there is a an underground master plan uh, produced this year which looks at taking a lot of industrial commercial infrastructure activities currently on the land surface and moving them underground to free up more space for housing and uh, and um, other forms of urban development um, but the 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 leading idea in the short term, remains uh, increasing density, uh, even higher densities, 
at the moment the um, the tallest public sector housing block is about 50 stories and there are private sector blocks which reach over 70 those are likely to increase and um, uh, a lot of work is going into uh, making sure that as well as high density these are areas of high residential quality with um, greenery services facilities um, walkability all built in to the uh, the the town plan uh, what was your favorite part about writing this book um oh that's a that's an interesting question i mean i i um, i love being in singapore um it's a uh, it's um for a planner it's such a um at, at one level uh to be in a city which um works that really works um is is very interesting yeah uh, um and and the um the multicultural multiracial nature of singapore also makes it a, a wonderful place to visit just because of the um, the different cultures and the food um uh the um the other thing that I really enjoyed about the book was getting to to know my Singaporean colleagues. The, the authors are probably two thirds Singaporean and one third from overseas. And the um, learning a little more about the the different tasks of academics in, in different cultures and society and the different constraints that um, we work under um, was, was one of the, the, the more interesting things. Um, and on that last point, another, another strength that Singapore has, certainly by comparison to, to Australia, I think, at present, is the amount of um, time and resources that go into urban research. I mean, there, there is a, a very um, significant effort in Singapore that goes into thinking about the future uh, and to, to funding the sort of urban research that... Um, is necessary to to underpin that. Um, uh, I think I think that's um, a very significant part of Singapore's success and and um, of its prospects of um, meeting the different challenges of the future um, um, successfully. I think it's as well placed as anywhere to do that. Well, as Charles, sure, thinking about that, we just said that is um, even though it's kind of top down, it sounds like that that. I'm sure a lot of people work for the government. They did do to be successful in adding so much biodiversity. They must have really done their research. Yes, yes. I mean, there, there are questions about the nature of Singapore's democratic model and um, um, where it will go in the future. And, and shortly, they'll have their fourth generation of post-independence leaders, and, and there'll be some interesting challenges and debates for them to i think i think there's no doubt that singapore will continue to to liberalize but the the pace at which it becomes more liberal and democratic and the the form that that um society takes in future is is very much open to um there, there are alternative paths ahead and and um i think increasingly they'll be the subject of debate and scrutiny within singapore well, um, Steve, I want to thank you uh, so much for being here today. I know we've taken up a lot of your time, and this has been a nice um, – it's been really interesting to uh, hear from people in other parts of the globe uh, doing these podcasts. Um, you're all halfway around the world, and I'm here on the other side in Miami, and, and yet there's a lot of, lot of similar issues uh, and uh, solutions that we can all find. Um, so can you tell our audience, uh, today, uh, what are you working on now? What exciting things are you, is happening for you? Um, well, I, I think it's probably fair to say I'm well past the pinnacle of my academic career and probably descending the steep slopes on the other side fairly, fairly quickly. Um, I have, uh, two grandsons and a third on the way and they take up more and more of my time in the most delightful way. So I don't have too many major projects to talk about um, at present. I'll certainly continue writing about 
Australian cities and no doubt will continue to bemoan the fact that in a country the size of Australia, with none of the spatial constraints of Singapore, we continue to force most of our population into the two oversized and congested cities of Sydney and Melbourne, each each about 5 million people, each about the size of Singapore, instead of pursuing sensible policies of planned decentralisation and regional development. And I'll certainly maintain my links with Singapore, and I, I do want to pursue the notion of Singapore as an experimental city, which is the, um, uh, the sub-theme of the book, um, by documenting in rather more detail some of the experimental and innovative projects currently underway, especially in housing and in transport. So those are my immediate plans. Well, that sounds fascinating. And I uh, hope that you'll be uh, still writing into uh, retirement about, uh, yeah, about Australian cities. I haven't seen any books about that at the moment. Not yet. Well, I can I can recommend um, Steve Hamlet and Robert Freestone, uh, 2017, uh, the um, planning metropolitan Australia. I'll be happy to send you a, a link. Oh, okay. Well, sounds good. Sounds like a, a, another book for another interview. <laughs> um, <laughs> there we go. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much from down under and uh, from over over here on the other side of the world. And uh, we look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Thank you very much, Trisha. I appreciate it. Again, this is Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And today's book was Planning Singapore, The Experimental City by Stephen Hammett and Belinda Ewan, published by Routledge in 2019. Thank you so much for listening.